Hello and welcome to Medico Legal Expert Insight. My name is Jessica and in this podcast, we interview medical and legal professionals to help connect and understand when, what, why and how both sides interpret the information given to them. The goal is to share expert opinions from both sides of the medico-legal industry. I do want to say a huge thank you to eReports for the support and access to all these incredible experts. So let's get started and connect the dots through conversation. Today, I am joined by Emily Knowles, a registered psychologist dedicated to the study of psychological forces in the context, in the work context. Emily requalified as a psychologist after an early career training as a lawyer. Emily and I are going to be discussing well-being of medico-legal professionals. Emily's going to help us understand what the meaning behind well-being actually is, what could trigger a well-being moment in your line of work, some advice on approaching and digesting conflict, and some particular practices she would recommend to ensure professionals are checking in on their well-being. So let me introduce you to Emily. Currently practicing as a registered psychologist, Emily is experienced in both consulting and in-house psychology roles. At present, she's furthering her specialism and qualification in the registered program for organizational psychology. Originally trained as a lawyer, like I mentioned, her professional approach is indisciplinary, innovative and differentiated. Early in her career, Emily worked in the legal profession, clerking in both civil and criminal environments, and she was previously a judge's associate in the Supreme Court of South Australia. Emily's passion is to bring a psychological lens to the world of work in order to support and enable sustainable high performance and well-being, especially in the legal context. Emily is focused on human-centered insights and harnessing soft skills within the workforce. Combining her two fields of study, she is dedicated to building individual and collective capability and aligns herself with a systems thinking approach. A very interesting background you have, Emily. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Jess. So let's start with the very first question because it is one of those, I, f- I feel like well-being is a bit of a buzzword. So what exactly does well-being mean? Thanks, Jess. It's so important to unpack and make meaning of this very loaded word, as you've mentioned. Yeah. Um, and rather than focusing on clients today, we're really going to turn the lens inward. Mm-hmm. So how are you looking after you? That's the question we're asking our listeners. And in asking this question, we put the human first. So we understand what we can do to look after ourselves requires us to acknowledge, A, the highly nuanced environment in which we work in, and B, also the way in which we as individual humans, with our own unique constitutions, respond to the demands and challenges that spring up, or sometimes it's more of a creep up in our professional world. Mm. So I work with exploring self-understanding as the first step to wellness. Well-being, like health, is an infinite game. There's no definitive endpoint. Well-being isn't something we can win. There's no fixed rules for this game, but we can lean on best practice. 
So hopefully I can offer our listeners an organising framework for some of the considerations that we can keep in mind as we go about our highly complex and demanding professional lives in the legal and medical professions. Mm. How does that sound? Yeah, that sounds great. (laughs) Excellent. So it's always helpful to start off with a definition. The research offers a few different kinds of definitions. We've got very technical definitions and then we've got working definitions. So I just want to kind of canvas and landscape where we're at with our definitional lens. Yeah, perfect. The World Health Organization uh, defines mental health as a state of well-being in which an individual realizes his or her own abilities, can cope with the normal stresses of life, can work productively, and is able to make a contribution to his or her community. So that's our really standardized um, World Health Organization definition that's often a starting point for our understanding. But I'd like to give us a little bit more of a, a depth and richness. So what we can really kind of, how we can start to make sense of well-being is that it's a multi-dimensional construct. And by that we mean there are multiple dimensions or elements. And the three most commonly accepted are physical, psychological and social. So what we mean by that is the physical is our body. So being physically safe and healthy and ensuring our bodies are healthy through nutrition, exercise, sleep, rest and renewal Mm -hmm. and experiencing physical safety and security as being safe from injury or harm. That's our physical uh, dimension. Then we've got our psychological dimension, which is very much our inner experience of the world. So our emotional and mental capacity and stability. It includes how we process information, judgments, decisions we make and how we deal with and express our emotions. And then we've got the social component, which is our interaction and connectivity with others, our sense of connection, belonging and support through positive interpersonal relationships. And it's really important to kind of put that in context of the fact that our well-being also consists consists and sits on a continuum. So we've got a, if you imagine kind of a, a spectrum or a continuum where you've got well at one end and unwell at the other, You've kind of got the the flourishing to suffering journey and people at different points in their lives and in response to different events find themselves at different places on that journey Mm. and it's very dynamic. So as well as well-being being multidimensional, it's also dynamic. And so that's a real kind of framework or a basis for us to start understanding what we mean by well-being. And Martin Seligman, who's a really great positive psychologist, has offered this definition, which I like as our working definition here. Well-being cannot exist just in your own head. Well-being is a combination of feeling good as well as actually having meaning, good relationships and accomplishments. I love that. That I I love the actually the breaking down of the different areas of well-being. I've actually never heard that before. Yeah, so it's a nice way to, like we said, unpack mm. this word that has a lot of meaning. And what I really would like to do kind of in this episode together is start to contextualize well-being because it looks really different to different professionals. Mm. And we know that well-being matters because it's linked to quality of life and sustained high performance. So that's our energy levels and, you know, how those are accompanied by other pleasant or unpleasant emotions. That counts, especially when we're looking at our world of work. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, and so when we look at well-being, I think it's also helpful to look at the opposite of well-being. Um, so the worst-case scenario, which is burnout. Mm. And as many of the listeners may be aware, 
burnout's more than just being really tired. Again, we've got our technical definition of burnout and it's characterised by three elements, exhaustion, unproductivity and cynicism. And again, it's on a spectrum or a continuum. You don't just arrive at burnout. It's a bit of a journey to get there. Mm. So it starts at, you know, being engaged and healthy and well. And then normally the scale moves to being ineffective, then feeling overextended, then being disengaged from your work and then being burnt out. And burnout can lead to maladaptive coping practices that can damage relationships with both patients and colleagues. And so it actually puts patient care at risk in the long term. So burnout is really somewhere we want to avoid. So I think that helps us put in context as well, kind of what well-being is and what it isn't. Yeah. So being in the, because obviously a lot of our listeners today are in the medico-legal profession. So they're lawyers, barristers, medical professionals. Um, what what are some things that could trigger a well-being moment in their line of work? And what is some things that they could pick up on that maybe they 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 need to have this moment or maybe even recognizing they're about to reach burnout. Thanks, Jess. I'm going to press pause on that definition of a well-being moment because I think that's really important. What I want to first mention is, you know, the importance of this conversation for us to have because mm. of the known prevalence of well-being concerns and impacts in both the legal and medical professions. We're really dealing here with two very high-pressure and stressful environments. And the publishing of the landmark report, Courting the Blues, in 2009, offered us the statistics in the legal profession. They surveyed more than 1,600 solicitors and barristers across Australia to find that 31% of solicitors and 16.7% of barristers surveyed were classified in the high to very high levels of psychological distress. Wow. Based on the K10, Kessler, yeah, they're, they're big numbers, aren't they? Yeah. And so then, okay, with the analogue in the medical profession, um, we don't have to dig deep into the Lancet to understand what's happening around physician burnout and what's mm. being reported there. But there's a really great report by Beyond Blue that they published in 2013, mm-hmm. which um, was also a national mental health survey of, um, in this case, doctors and medical students. Yeah. And it paints the landscape in that kind of sphere. And there we um, had responses from more than 12,000 doctors from around Australia. And again, using the K10, doctors reported substantially higher rates of psychological distress and suicidal thoughts compared to both the Australian population and other working professionals. Wow. That really brings it into focus, doesn't it? It really does. Yeah. And so well-being, really what we're talking about here is our well-being in relation to our client interactions our involvement in the adversarial system in the medico-legal context, but also your world of work in your individual firm or practice. So when we come back to that idea of the wellbeing moment, basically it's a situation which suddenly springs up or it can be more of a slow creep up, as I mentioned before. And this may be activated from a trigger in the external world, such as a traumatic or stressful event, or it may be a function of allostatic load. Now, very technical term. No, I was going to um, say, I and, hadn't heard that term before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and some of our listeners, I'm sure, in the medical profession will know what it means, but mm-hmm. I'm going to try and do it justice here. <laughs> um, how it's technically defined is the cost of chronic exposure to elevated or fluctuating endocrine or neural responses resulting from chronic or repeated challenges that you experience as stressful. 
So we're looking at a very biological and chemical response here, not just psychological. And so here, there's an ability to pay attention to spot yourself or maybe another, whether that's a peer, a junior or a senior, who might be having a well-being moment or who's approaching one. So really looking at yourself in the profession as to where you're sitting kind of in response to any well-being moments, but also looking out amongst us and looking amongst our professional peers to see if there's a place at which we can support others. And I really think as well it's important to think about this topic as a quite a multifaceted one, um, almost like it's a prism. Mm-hmm. So we can take looks from different angles. And your question before around the triggers, I think is a really important one, especially in our line of work, which um, has some very specific features of the environment and also some very specific people are attracted to this work. So my work really looks at the environment and then the person. And so we know, for example, some of the common stresses in the legal world are dealing with stress itself, conflict, which is a really interesting and complex one, anxiety, lack of sleep, and difficult clients. Mm. And so I'm sure some of those, if not all of them, transcend into the medical world as well. Yeah, definitely. But if we, yeah, if we look at the medical legal context as a particular environment, which is highly adversarial because it's, that's the nature of the, um, the system, um, it's really a zero-sum game. So it's a fixed game and we've got known players, fixed rules and a clear outcome. So as mentioned earlier, well-being is not a competition and none of the same thinking applies. So here we have our first mental hurdle to think about how conducive our environment is to cultivating sustainable levels of well-being. That's kind of the environment in context, Jess. Um, I'd like to go into the person now, if that's all right with you. Yeah, go for it. Awesome. So from a personality perspective, which is one of my deep areas of research, we can really look under the hood of the car to see the constitution of the typical lawyer, according to what we call trait theory. And as lawyers, we tend to be either by nature or by learned behavior, rather competitive, perfectionistic, and at times pessimistic. Mm-hmm. Now, Martin Seligman is the psychologist I mentioned earlier in our definition of well-being, and he has done some amazing research on the fact that while pessimism tends to not help other people when it comes to their well-being or with their effectiveness, there is a striking exception, and that's pessimism in the law. Lawyers actually are more pessimistic by trait theory and by nature, which actually makes them more successful in the law. So it's a really reinforcing cycle that's quite an interesting one. And then we've got, our, on the other hand, our typical medical professional, again, from a trait perspective. We've got some very conscientious people working there, which is a personality trait, high levels of commitment, and then that potential to be, at times, obsessive. So when I say obsessive, it's the, the conscientiousness that kind of tips into overdrive. So it's that high diligence that can become really, really passionate. But if we don't channel it in the right way, then it can become actually harmful to our well-being. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I can even see that, that those sort of traits in myself, like where you get really passionate about something. So you get really um, like deep into like the research or um, you, you could literally work all night on something because you're so interested in the outcome. Mm. And so there's a really interesting paradigm um, called harmonious 
passion versus obsessive passion. Mm. So that's another area that, you know, it's almost a topic for another podcast. But that's, <laughs> you know, there's so much in this, like when you start to unpack it. Um, and the, the thing that I really want to kind of draw our focus on here as well is that, um, you know, again, using that prism analogy is how do we spend our efforts if effort is a currency um, when it comes to well-being? So it may be worth thinking about, you know, the different kind of efforts we apply in our job. There's the cognitive load, um, which if unchecked can result in decision-making fatigue. There's the emotional toll, which is very much that piece that, um, you know, how do you manage your own emotions and the emotions of those around you in a supercharged um, emotive world? Mm. And then, as we said as well, um, we've also got that allostatic load, um, which is another form of effort. Um, so really we've got a few different things going on again and as legal and medical professionals with the demanding and sometimes grueling schedules and caseloads, we can get caught in the armour of busyness. So if we ignore the efforts we're applying, we can find ourselves on a slippery slope and if we don't or if we're not conscious of and mindful of those points along the way and we don't self-intervene, that's when we can start to find ourselves moving down the continuum in the wrong direction. So just to finish off this question, I thought it was useful maybe to share two resources with our listeners. Yeah, sure. Um, Perfect. So LexisNexis published a book last year in 2020 called Wellness for Law. Mm -hmm. It's a really great one that dives into some of these topics. If our legal listeners want to have a listen, um, or sorry, have a read. And then we've also got the um, what's called the Maslach Burnout Toolkit which is available online and it's a measurement device for looking at the extent and pattern of burnout and likely causes in your workforce. So I thought those two things might be really interesting and then I'll touch on some personal resources later. Yeah, nice. Thank you so much, Emily. So you, you talked a little bit about conflict, conflict within, you know, conflict's going to come up in the medico-legal profession all the time, whether it's with clients, whether it's in court. Is there anything that, any advice that you would give about approaching or even digesting conflict? Absolutely. Thanks, Jess. So we know that conflict is a key stressor for many lawyers and medical professionals. And we, what we really want to do here, again, is unpack this word conflict. Mm. When I think about conflict, There's a bit of mental gymnastics to work out what exactly we're talking about. Again, conflict can be a feature of the environment or a constitution of the person. So again, those two features really playing out here as they do for well-being. So it might be helpful here to differentiate four different types of conflict. We've got our conflict within the adversarial system, which I mentioned before, which is Mm. very much baked in to the system in which we're all working. Then you've got the conflict between you and the other side, so whether that's um, plaintiff and defendant, prosecution and defence. We've got conflict potentially between you and your client, whether that be the court in a forensic model, a litigator in a clinical model, or perhaps a litigant. And then you've got any conflict you might feel internally. So today I thought we could take one of those as an example and do a deep dive, um, if that works. Yeah, of course. Great. Um, So the the piece I think is really helpful to um, build some awareness around and some vocabulary around is how conflict might show up between you and your client. And when I say client, that's in whatever way that best makes sense for you, given your typical clientele. 
the most striking thing to me based on my work is the personality. Yeah. And by that I mean the personality of the professional, whether they be doctor, surgeon, specialist, solicitor or barrister, and the personality of the litigator or the litigant. So we know that we all have a bright side to our personality, but we also have what's called a dark side. Now, this dark side, which we all have, and there's no judgment here, um, yep. <laughs> it exists in varying kinds and varying degrees to everyone, but it comes out to play when we're stressed, tired, bored, or when we have our guard down. That is, we're not self-regulating. Mm. And it can even be an overplayed strength. Is this making sense? Yeah. It, it, I feel like the dark side is when you've when you let sort of your, your filter disappears because you're under stress or something's going on in your life and that filter disappears and you just come out with whatever you comes to mind. That's exactly right. So it's like less impression management, it's less strategic, it's a bit more uh, visceral, it's a bit more if we, you kind of that reptilian brain rather mm-hmm. than your prefrontal cortex yep. being activated <laughs> from a brain-based perspective. So examples that we really see here amongst highly professionalised workforces such as lawyers and medical professionals is being overly sceptical, overly cautious, overly reserved or overly dutiful. So they're really the, the profiles that start playing out here. And myself as a practitioner in the psychology of work, these are the kinds of assessments that we can facilitate so that people can A, be aware of and B, manage their potential what we call derailers in high stress. So the professional or the client or both may have their dark side personality traits activated in a conflict scenario. And then again, building on this kind of personality perspective, what's really interesting is what's called the high conflict person. So based on lawyer Bill Eady's work at the High Conflict Institute, he's done a really deep examination of these people who have patterns of high conflict behaviour that have a tendency to escalate conflict rather than reduce or resolve conflict. Mm. So you may have encountered some of these people before, either in your professional or personal life, I imagine. Yeah. And a final kind of piece to the puzzle here as well is um, what we call a, a neuroscience perspective. And David Rock has this model called the SCARF model. And essentially it's um, our activations of threat and reward pathways in our brain. And what's really important to remember here is that normally when you're in this high pressure or you know litigious environment you will be dealing with people with their emotional brain very active so what we see here is that people can respond um, to feeling threatened when it comes to their status maybe the certainty in their life autonomy feeling related or their sense of fairness and again I think these points really resonate um, for us in the adversarial system because of the way in which kind of things have escalated by the time we get to that point. And so just really kind of what I want to finish on here is just looking at conflict behaviours. And there's actually tools out there that you can use to self-assess what type of conflict style you have. Um, and thinking about conflict, we really put it into kind of the categories of constructive and destructive conflict because conflict isn't always a bad thing. Mm. Um, it's how we deal with it. And also there's active and passive ways in which we can deal with conflict. So like I said, there's actually tools out there that you might want to kind of word yourself up on or you might want to start integrating them into some of um, the ways in which you work collaboratively with other people because it can give you a real insight into your hot buttons 
and also start um, helping you to build, again, an organising framework around, you know, how you meet a highly conflictious moment or person and what your options are for responding. So from a wellbeing perspective, I encourage my clients to spot those moments of potential conflict as an opportunity to practice a blend of problem-focused coping and emotion-focused coping. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like in this profession, and I'm sure in lots of professions, awareness is something that you should be constantly working on. Would that be right? Yeah, and it's really the first step. Yeah. Because if we if we have an awareness of firstly what some of our, like I said, kind of the environmental triggers might be, but then also about personal circumstances, you know, we're all, we've all had different kind of, we've all got a different blueprint, whether you look at it from a nature or a nurture perspective. And then you add to that all of the experiences that you've already had on the job and in your professional sphere, which really starts to paint the picture as well around kind of what your triggers can be, um, when you've had moments in the past where you've had um, challenges that you've really struggled to meet or where you've really met a challenge with a lot of, you know, positive force and you've been able to surmount it. So, yes, we're all individual, but I think what's key here is the importance of self-awareness mm. and that gives you a framework to understand others if you understand yourself more. Yeah, of course. So is there is there any practices that you'd recommend to ensure these legal professionals are checking in on their well-being? So whether we find ourselves in the performance zone um, when we're at our best or in the survival zone when we're not at our best, mm-hmm. the rest zone is the most important place to visit. So before we talked about all the types of effort that we have in our lives, rest and recovery is the strongest personal practice that we have at our disposal. And so what that means is intentional downtime is key for proactive buffering and remedial impacts against those stresses in our lives. Yeah. Now, rest is that great personal resource and it's a great one that we can also activate autonomously. We don't need really anyone else to be able to do that. Mm. We just need to give ourselves permission. And it probably doesn't sound like I'm you know, reinventing the wheel here, but what's really important is that even if you already are doing some of these things or if you're not just yet, is to be really deliberate about them. So there's lots of schools of thought when it comes to most endorsed rest and recovery practices. What we know from the research is that breaking down rest and recovery practices to what's called macro, meso and micro breaks can help. Mm-hmm. So your macro break is your vacation. And the research actually tells us that the benefits for health and well-being fade out normally after two to four weeks. So you will return to a set point if you just rely on vacations as your only um, rest and recovery practice, which is probably a bit disheartening for some of us who really hinge on those holidays and vacations. (laughs) So what the research suggests instead is, yes, they're important to have, but, you know, you need to have a hybrid model going for yourself. Um, So the mezzo breaks are those breaks at your weekends and also your evenings. And what the research tells us is that it's really important, not so much the activity that you engage in, but the experience you have while you're recovering. And we should be aiming for three experiences, um, the research tells us, and they are either detachment, relaxation, or mastery. And so detachment is really that ability to switch off. Um, 
however that looks for you, so switching off at the end of the day um, and when it comes to Friday night, what is that transition ritual that you have so that you know you're no longer in work mode, so Mm, to speak? I love that. Yeah, and that's that's a good one. And then you've got relaxation, which can be of the mind or body so that, you know, you're kind of listening to soft music, your massage, maybe doing some yoga, anything else, you know, being in nature that you find relaxing. Mm Mm-hmm. And then quite different again is that third one of mastery, which is pursuing another area of interest, you know, maybe it's sport or cooking or gardening that you actually are putting intentional and active effort into. And it's, it's giving you a sense of accomplishment outside of your work life, which is really important for well-being. Yeah. Okay. That's really interesting. I, when you said mastery, I was like, hmm, that's, don't know what that is. <laughs> Yeah, so they're all, you can see they're all quite different, those yeah. three recovery experiences, and it's very much up to you as to how you craft them in your life. Um, and the third type of break is what we call micro breaks. So they're those things you can actually do during the work day, and um, there's some really good work by Zaker, Brailsford and Parker, it's a 2014 study, mm-hmm. and they give us some, uh, some suggestions for how we can increase vitality doing certain things and then decrease fatigue doing certain things. So, for example, increased vitality, the practices, and they're very simple, but the um, research tells us that these practices increase vitality, and they are drinking water, having a snack, going outside for fresh air. On the other side, the activities that can decrease fatigue are, as many of us would be well aware, having a caffeinated beverage, Mm -hmm. but also going to the bathroom, having a stretch, or talking to someone about a common interest. So there's actually very little things that we can be doing and they seem so subtle, but if we do them intentionally with the mindset that right now I'm having a micro break, the research tells us that that is a really positive thing for our well-being. Yeah. And probably just, yeah, one more thing, Jess, if I can, to give people some, you know, one more kind of set of tools for their toolkit. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I mentioned before David Rock, who runs the Neuroleadership Institute, which is very much a brain-based approach um, to how we do all sorts of things in life. But him and Dan Siegel, um, another very well-regarded psychologist, have coined the term healthy mind platter. And these are seven activities that each have different and beneficial effects on the mind that complement each other, Mm -hmm. providing together a well-balanced, what they've called mental diet, for optimal neurocognitive functioning and well-being. So the Healthy Mind Platter proposes a framework for creating and maintaining mental well-being and summarises and integrates distinct strands of neuroscience and psychology research. So the seven healthy mind platter activities are sleep time, so that's how we refresh our mind and body and consolidate our memory, mm-hmm. play time, and that's really the joy of experimenting with life, Downtime, disconnecting for integration and insight, connecting time, the healing power of relationships, focus time, attention management for performance, physical time, improving the brain's plasticity through exercise, and time in, which is really that reflection, attunement, and mindfulness. So I really encourage um, the lawyers I work with to double down on their personal practices, things which they already know work for them and borrowing from the research where they can or experimenting with new ways by speaking with their peers to find out what works for others in the profession. As I said, it may not feel new, but being intentional about putting them into practice 
in a disciplined way is vital. Yeah, I really love that. I love that breakdown. So, um, Emily, is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners today to um, fin- finish up the podcast? I guess just a big thank you to you, Jess, and your team for having me. And my hope as well is that not only inf- the information I've shared in this episode is in itself beneficial to listeners, but the very fact that the issue is being discussed, I hope that that can contribute to the solution. Yeah, definitely. I think it will. And I think you've given some really good sort of actionable insights. There's some good resources that you've mentioned today. So I really hope that um, the listeners do look into it and take into consideration all of these things that you've shared because I think it would make a big impact on people's lives. I think they underestimate the little things that you can do in your day-to-day that makes a huge impact. Thanks, Jess. I agree.